0: Hello, and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 76, From Urchin to Emperor. This week we'll go back 20 years and pick up the other strain of our history of the Hohenstaufen. These last three episodes we focused on events in Germany and the struggle between Philip of Swabia and Otto IV. Today we take a closer look at the early years of Frederick II, before he came to Germany and took over. Little is known. But much has been written about the youth of Emperor Frederick II, not only because it was exceedingly turbulent, but also because it forged a man who burst on the European stage aged 14, already displaying many of those personality traits that would make him known as the Stupor Mundi, the Astonishment of the World. How did he become who he became? Now, before we start, just a reminder. The History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website, historyofthegermans.com. you find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Jason, Dave Kay and Dennis, who've already signed up. Now let us go back to 1194. Emperor Henry VI is still sitting on his throne. Not only that, he had just been crowned King of Sicily, the fulfilment of all his ambitions. In that year, on December 26, the day of St. Stephen in the city of Gesey, was born to him a son, Frederick, by his wife Constance, who had been in her fortieth year and barren for so long. We rarely know the birthdays of even the most important personalities in the Middle Ages. Birthdays were not as significant as the day of baptism and in some places the name day, which established a connection of the child with the divine or the saintly. Frederick is different in that, as in many other areas of life, he remembers his birthday and even orders his birthday to be celebrated with great feasts throughout his realm. The first ruler in post-Roman times to do so. Not just that, but there is even a poem written about his birth, by Peter of Iboli, a monk and chronicler of the reign of Henry VI. He wrote, From Italy came the palm of a triumphal new birth, having the distinction of a fortunate father. He was brought to life through screams heard by those present. The palm tree brought forth its fruit, although delayed. A son is born to Augustus, a boy who will excel at arms. Though the father is fortunate, the son will be more so. This boy will in every way be blessed. Now this is lifted almost word for word from Virgil, and ties little Frederick back to the Romans, Aeneas, and the city of Troy. As you may remember, by now the official Hohenstaufen ideology is that there is only one imperial dynasty, and that goes back to Troy, and has ruled ever since Julius Caesar in an unbroken line that led to this little boy in a crib in the Mark of Ancona. It even has some messianic connotations that Frederick would rekindle in 1245 when he writes to the citizens of jay calling their hometown his Bethlehem where his blessed mother had birthed him. Now Peter of Eboli wrote those words sometime between 1195 and 97, so little does he know about the fate of the blessed boy because these first years are not at all fortunate. The very first image we have of Frederick is again in the book of Peter of Eboli. We see a baby, wrapped up tightly, wearing a tiny crown, being handed over by his mother to the Duchess of Spoleto, who will look after him. The Duchess and even his own mother touched the precious child only with their covered hands. Frederick will stay with the family of the Duke of Spoleto for the next three years. The Duke, Conrad von Oslingen was an aristocrat from Swabia with possessions around the city of Rottweil. Conrad had come to Italy in the train of Emperor Barbarossa. Barbarossa had acquired the Duchy of Spoleto from his uncle the VI and had put Conrad in, first as administrator and a little later as Duke. The Oslingers were able to hold on to Spoleto even through the upheavals following the Battle of Lignano and the Peace of Venice. When Henry VI came through these lands in an attempt to conquer Sicily, Konrad von Orslingen provided significant military help. Conrad and Henry VI became quite close. He was one of the few people present at the Emperor's deathbed. Hence leaving Frederick in the care of Konrad von Orslingen made a lot of sense, rather than taking him to Sicily, which was still convulsed with rebellion. Conrad, like most medieval fathers, had very little or nothing to do with child-rearing. That was entirely left to the women, and if money was no object of tutor, usually a monk or bishop. Hence the first person Frederick formed an attachment to was Conrad's wife, the Duchess of Spoleto. About her, pretty much nothing at all is known, not even a name, nor whether she was German or Italian. Hence, we do not know what language little Frederick spoke his first words in. Conrad and his nameless wife had two sons, marginally older than Frederick, and a daughter, Adelheid, of roughly the same age. Later in life Frederick will have a mistress called Adelheid from a noble Swabian stock, who will give birth to Enzo, one of Frederick's most favourite sons, and king of Sardinia, prisoner in Bologna. His mother may have been the same Adelheid he played with as a toddler. The next important event in his life, that he was probably blissfully unaware of, was his election as the King of the Romans, sometime between 1196 or 1197. At that point, he is two to three years old, but not yet baptized. The delay is explained by his father's desire to make amends with the Pope, and one of his offers was to let the Pope baptize young Frederick himself. But that did not happen. In all likelihood, Frederick was baptized in nearby Assisi, sometime after negotiations with the papacy had irrevocably broken down. Albert von Stade describes it as a splendid event attended by fifteen bishops and the emperor himself, one of the very few times Henry VI actually saw his son. Such a great spectacle would almost certainly have attracted a young man, son of a wealthy cloth merchant in the city with a love of troubadour romances, court life, and a burning ambition to become a knight. the young man had been baptised over that same baptismal font in the name of Giovanni, but he would later change his name to Francis, and he was known now as Saint Francis of Assisi. The emperor and the most significant saint of the 13th century will cross paths many more times. The time at the castle of Folignano, where the dukes of Spoleto lived, comes to an abrupt end, when Henry VI died in 1197. Constance immediately sends for him to be brought to Palermo, and as we have heard, when Philip of Swabia arrived in central Italy to pick up his nephew for his coronation in Aachen, the little boy is gone, and the house of Hohenstaufen is thrown into a severe crisis. Now again, nobody mentions anything about how Frederick took the separation from the person he in all likelihood regarded as his mother. But this will not be the only trauma. When Frederick arrives in Palermo, he meets his mother, presumably for the first time since she had left him in the care of the Urslingen three years earlier. Constance is at that point preoccupied with the question of how she can secure the kingdom of Sicily for her son. She gives up the title of king of the Romans on behalf of her son, so that he can be crowned king of Sicily with the papal blessing. That stabilised things for the moment. Meanwhile, as we know, Philip had himself elected king of the Romans and had received approval from Constance to be crowned. Sicily and the empire are now separated. Shortly after that, on November 27, 1198, Constance of Sicily dies. Frederick is still only four years old and now an orphan. In her testament, Constance had appointed Pope Innocent III, guardian of young Frederick. Innocent kept entirely aloof from his ward. He would send papal legates to look after him, and he felt anxiety for his dangers, praised his progress, and expressed unfeigned pleasure at his escape from enemy hands. But he never saw him in all these years until the boy was 17. There are also no family members looking out for little Frederick, The only remaining Hohenstaufen was Philip, and he was far away in Germany. His mother's family, the Hautevilles, had been decimated or exiled by his father Henry VI, and those who returned bore him ill will. In principle, the kingdom was ruled by Frederick's guardian, Pope Innocent III, but Innocent, as I said, stayed back in Rome. In practice, the kingdom was managed by a regency council, headed by the chancellor of the kingdom, Walter of Pallia, Walter was first and foremost interested in his own and his family's advancement. But since his power rested on his appointment as regent for little Frederick, he was the closest thing to an ally Frederick had got. After Constance's death, the kingdom collapsed into chaos. Several factions fought for supremacy and possession of the child king. There were the Germans who had come to Sicily with Henry VI. Many had been ministeriales or simple knights and out here in the south, had risen to be counts and even attained princely rank. Their leader was Markward of Anweiler, erstwhile trusted military commander of Henry the Sixth's armies and now elevated to Margraf of Ancona. Anweiler saw himself as a representative of the Hohenstaufen power in Italy and he took orders from Philip of Swabia. Opposed to the Germans was the old Norman aristocracy. Whose positions had been curtailed after the fall of Tancred. They saw an opportunity to chuck out the northern invaders and either replace little Frederick with one of their own or to make him their plaything. Their cause got a massive boost when Innocent III pushed the Regency Council to return the provinces of Taranto and Lecce to Walter of Brienne, the son in law of the former King Tancred. That gave his faction a natural focal point. Clearly, Innocent III wasn't looking out for his wards' interest at all times. And then we have the Muslim population in central Sicily, who raided the lands outside the major cities, while the Pisans were enforcing trading privileges on the island, some real, some imagined. And for the barons in the mainland, who were neither Norman nor German, their objective was simply a weak central power, that allowed them to do as they please. All these parties had only one thing in common, to pursue their own most obvious advantage, and to enrich themselves at the expense of the helpless king, who thus became the focus of all their activities. The goal, above all others, was to get possession of the king's person, for this charge represented the legal basis of the victor's de facto power. Frederick became a lamb amongst ravenous wolves, as the chronicler put it. There's one story about Frederick when he was seven years old. In 1201, Markbard of Anweiler had overpowered Walter of Pallia and had entered Palermo. He and his men searched for their quarry, the boy king who they found in some back room of the Castello Amare. Frederick tried to fight them, but when he realized the futility of his actions, he threw away his royal garments and began scratching himself with his nails in his impotent rage. The papal legate who informs the Pope of these events concludes that it was a worthy omen for the future ruler, Cannot be false to his own nobility, who, with royal instincts, feels himself, like Mount Sinai, outraged by the touch of a beast of prey. The question arises how a child could grow up in such circumstances and become a commensurate ruler, an accomplished diplomat, a skilled administrator with enormous appetites for life, love, and above all, knowledge. The story I grew up with is probably best told in the words of Ernst Kantorowitz whose biography of Frederick II we will encounter several times on our journey, and which itself, and its author's life, are worth a whole episode. Here is what he had to say about Frederick's childhood. Quote, From this time forward, he means after the coup of Marquardt of Weiler, no one in the fortress seemed to have bothered his head about the boy. The royal property had been so shockingly squandered that the child was often literally in want of the barest necessities, till the compassionate citizens of Palermo took pity on him and found him food. One fed him for a week, another for a month, each according to his circumstances. He was a handsome boy, whose clear, bright glance already caused remark, and the people were probably glad to see him amongst them. At eight and nine years old, the young king wandered about without let or hindrance and strolled unchecked through the narrow streets and markets and gardens of the semi-African capital, at the foot of the pellegrino. An amazing variety of peoples, religions and customs jostled each other before his eyes. Mosques with their minarets, synagogues with their cupolas stood cheek by jowl with Norman churches and cathedrals, which again had been adorned by Byzantine masters with gold mosaics, their rafters supported by Greek columns, on which Saracen craftsmen had carved in Kufic script the name of Allah. Round the town lay the pleasure gardens and fountains of the Norman kings, in the exotic gardens and animal preserves of the Conca the delights of which had inspired the Arab poets. In the marketplaces the people went about their business in many-coloured confusion, Normans and Italians, Saracens, Jews and Greeks. The lively Boy was driven back on all these for company and soon learned the customs and the speech of all these tribes and races. Did any wise Iman play the part of Chiron to the lonely child? Did some unknown tutor teach the future ruler of men to observe, to know, to use the forces of earth and nature? We do not know. We are certain only that his education was unique and radically different from any that ever fell to the lot of a royal child. Later men marveled at his knowledge of the habits of man and beast and plant as profoundly as they trembled at his actual approach. Frederick was not brought up, as his father for instance had been, by a learned chaplain of the type of Godfrey of Verterbo, not reared like many another prince by world-shy monks in the seclusion of a cloister. Amazed by his comprehensive knowledge, his astounding exotic erudition, men have sought diligently to trace the real teacher of this great Hohenstaufen. Research has not revealed his Aristotle and with reason. The teacher never existed whom he would not have surpassed and disillusioned, and the school of a mere fencing master would not long have satisfied him. Frederick II is a typically self-taught man. He had no one to thank for his education. What he was, he was, sut virtute. Quite possibly he learned the elements from that Magister William Franciscus who had once been mentioned in attendance on him as a seven-year-old boy and is on record as still with him in 1208. Quite possibly one or another of the papal legates may have taken an interest in him and taught him the necessary amount of scripture. Quite possibly he received irregular instruction now and then in other things, but he never enjoyed a systematic education. His later learning bears all the marks of being not the product of school, but of life itself. He was compelled from his tenderest years to absorb directly, without extraneous aid and from every source, the strength he needed. This differentiated his knowledge, both in its content and its application, from that of his contemporaries. Stern necessity was his first tutor, and she, to quote the Pope's expression, taught him the eloquence of grief and of complaint at an age when other children, Scarcely lisp right. His next instructors were the marketplaces and streets of Palermo, life itself, he laid the foundations of his wisdom in those wanderings which made him the friend of every man. End quote. The idea of young Frederick running wild through the streets of Palermo, a city second only to Constantinople when it comes to the mingling of cultures, is sharply dismissed by modern historians. There are no real contemporaneous accounts of such activities or the hunger of the boy, and the citations used to confirm it have been written 70 and 100 years later. But most importantly, there is no way whoever was in control of Palermo at any given point would let Frederick II run free. Too large is the risk he could be kidnapped by a rival in this endless civil war and used to prop up another rickety regime. Now hear all this. And it sort of makes sense. But then I look at teenagers. I look at the teenager I have at home, and I look at him when he's angry. They can be so god awfully stubborn. And that is leverage in itself. Walter or Marquardt or whoever just controlled Palermo needed Frederick to occasionally parade through town and perform some ceremonial function. If they wanted for that to go smoothly, they needed to give Frederick some leeway. He may not be running around town all on his own and unguarded, but he could have demanded his bodyguards to keep a distance while he is discovering all there is to see in the Concadoro, the Bay of Palermo. In 1208, at the age of 14, Frederick receives the Schwertleiter, which means he is now considered an adult and expected to gradually transition to independent personal rule. He is an accomplished politician well beyond his years, He has his grandfather Barbarossa's inexhaustible energy and ability to charm people over to his side. From his other grandfather, Roger II, he has inherited intellectual rigour and administrative skills. And he has this unquenchable curiosity to find out how the world works, the desire for new experiences, for adventures and for sexual pleasure, something entirely of his own. Can you believe that this man had been locked up in a castle with a dour monk as tutor for all his early adolescence. I can't, and that is why I stick to the romantic image of a future emperor roaming the streets of the Sicilian capital like an urchin. Now, what happened next? We already discussed last episode. So if you haven't, I strongly recommend that you do check out episode 75, Wet pants and Other Miracles. And for those of you who do not have the time or the inclination, here is the 60 second rundown. In 1208, King Philip of Swabia is murdered, which brings his opponent Otto IV to the throne. Otto had enjoyed papal support, but makes the fatal mistake to go after Sicily in 1211. The papacy is utterly terrified by the idea of being surrounded by imperial territories, by Lombardy and Tuscany in the north and the Kingdom of Sicily in the south. Hence Innocent III withdraws support from Otto IV and encourages the German princes to elect Frederick II to become emperor. That is where Otto IV makes its second mistake. His army is down in Messina, and if he had crossed over to the island, Palermo would have fallen, and he would have had his rival in custody. But he panicked and ran home, all that also involving a dream about bears. As I said, listen to episode 75, much better than this rushed story. Anyway, Frederick II realises that he has to go to Germany and take the crown, because whoever will be emperor in the future will try to take Sicily from him. He sets off, nearly dies a couple of times and then, in the nick of time, enters the city of Constance, which gives him the much-needed foothold north of the Alps. The civil war resumes pretty much where Philip and Otto had left off and only ends in the battle Frederick's not involved in at all, the Battle of Bouvines. Bouvines was a battle between the armies of King Philip August of France and the King John Lackland of England. Otto IV had been reliant on English support, and hence King John had asked him to gather an army and, together with the English forces, defeat the French monarch. The battle ends with the rout of Otto's troops, which triggers a set of events that reshape the face of Europe. Frederick II becomes the undisputed king of the Romans and subsequently emperor. The French monarchy enters its great expansionist phase, and will see them becoming the dominant power in Europe. And... Most importantly, it leads almost directly to the Barons' Rebellion and the signing of Magna Carta. There you go. Frederick II is Emperor. How he reigns, in particular how he approaches the politics in Germany, will be subject to the next episode. I hope you will be joining us again. Before I go, let me thank all of you for supporting the show, in particular the patrons who have kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. It is thanks to you that this show does not have to do advertising for mattresses or, as I recently heard, energy supplements and pension plans. If Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the History of the Germans, it is more likely to be seen by others, hence bringing in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter, at Germans History, and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes.